Once upon a time. In a land far away. I'm Katrina. And I'm Jeff. And welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat. While we retell you a thing. Hello, we've got a great episode of the podcast today, but first I had some notes and clarifications from past episodes that I kind of wanted to go over. So hopefully we won't have to do this too often, but I also hope that our listeners will grant us a little grace that when we mess up, when we don't know what we're talking about, that they will just, you know, let us know if you hear something that you're like, hey, I don't think that's right. Push back on it. Um, Talk to us. We would love to be corrected so that we can learn more and so we don't pass on misinformation. The most egregious piece of misinformation that I'm going to talk to you about is in the Aesop's Fables episode, we said, Jeff and I both, said that we believed that Bilbo Baggins had confused the trolls into continuing to argue with each other to trick them so that he would be able to escape. This was an egregious lie. We were wrong. We were spreading falsehoods. Luckily, Stephen Colbert, friend of the podcast, let us know about our Lord of the Rings misinformation. Just kidding. It was my sister. (laughs) She messaged me immediately after listening to the episode and was like, Uh, Katrina, you and Jeff need to catch up on your Lord of the Rings, on your Hobbit stories, on all of your Tolkien lore, because I think that you will find that (laughs) Gandalf was the one who was keeping the trolls arguing and tricked them into staying up until arguing until the sun came up. So I'd like to apologize to all of our listeners for this lie and this falsehood. Um, And I want to say thank you to my sister for making sure that I don't pass on any Tolkien misinformation. So the next thing I wanted to talk about was in the introduction episode, when we were talking about mythology, I mentioned a story from Christian mythology. So some Christians might hear me referring to their stories, the stories that are in the Bible, they might hear me calling them mythologies, and they might think that I'm making a truth claim allegation that I'm saying, oh, I, you know, like, these are make-believe, these are true, these are false. They're... But when we talk about mythology, and this goes for any religion's <laughs> mythology, all I'm saying when I call them a mythology is that they are a story that is told in a religious context. So like we covered in the introduction episode, it's a story that usually there's supernatural people, gods is the word that is most often used. And it's describing them creating things, how the universe was created, how all of this works, where we're going in the afterlife, all of that, all of those things is mythology. And so whether you're a Christian, a pagan, Hindu, Buddhist, anything else, and I'm telling your stories, I'm not making a judgment call on the validity of the stories or of the religion. So hopefully nobody was too taken aback when I mentioned Christian Christianity and their stories as a mythology. Um, because again, not making a claim on the validity of the stories. So the third thing that I just wanted to make note of before we kind of get into the meat of this next episode is in the introduction episode, I said that fables had to have talking animals. And that is not true. (laughs) The most important part of a fable is the moral lesson, the clear moral lesson that is being taught the, and thus we see, and you know, 
just the end part like that's stuck on, especially when we talk about Aesop's Fables. So in the episode of Aesop's Fables, people who are listening might have, you know, heard tales that did not involve talking animals. Um, the Oak and the Reeds that Jeff retold. That's an Aesop fable. Claire Morrill at the end, zero talking animals. The confusion and the complication is that there are lots of folk tales that have been written with talking animals as the main characters and in several different languages and throughout time, those stories have been called fables because they've included talking animals. And so again, like we discussed in the introduction episode, all of the terms have a lot of overlap. They're this weird Venn diagram of terms that overlap each other and have exceptions within the exceptions and it's all kind of a big mess. But a fable does not have to have talking animals. A fable, the most important part, is the moral. And you will see stories that have talking animals in further podcasts that would not be considered fables, but they actually might get labeled as fables in the stories that they're published in and the books that they're published in. So a little confusing. So hopefully those notes cleared everything up. If you do hear anything that we say that you're, you want to push back against, by all means, please message us on Facebook, on Instagram. We would love to hear anybody's like feedback and we are totally cool with being corrected or to search deeper into the things that we say so that we can make sure what we're saying is correct. But thanks to our listeners for any patience in any of our personal foibles that we have. Okay, so today we're going to talk about a story from Japan, which is exciting to me because I actually lived for a couple of years in Japan, which was awesome. And I know listeners may not know that Katrina did not live in Japan, but she lived in Asia for a long time. And so she's actually pretty familiar with Japan and other stuff. Yeah, I actually I was messaging my dad this week and I was like, Dad, I'm reading about these different places in Japan. I'm trying to remember which ones were the ones that I've been to because we did take this trip because my dad lived for a couple years in Japan and he speaks Japanese. And so when we were living in Asia, he took us on a trip to Japan because he wanted to like show us around and show us different places. And he also wanted to see like how they've changed and So we went to just a bunch of like old castles. And so I was kind of like, oh, while I'm reading about these fairy tales, like in Japan, I'm just imagining these like castles. So it was funny because I was messaging him about Japan and he was happy to go down memory lane. Yeah, that's awesome. And I was really excited. I mean, when we started doing this podcast, I was like, okay, I want to learn about some Japanese fairy tales just because it's a place that I, you know, know and love. And it's like, I don't know very much about their fairy tales and what it's like. So I thought, but then the more I went into it and started doing research, I was like, oh my gosh, I've heard like all these different stories. And I didn't really even like, you know, think about it. Like that's how kind of like ingrained it is. Like they just come up in, you know, a casual conversation that someone would be having with even like a foreigner like me that was, you know, living in Japan, including the one we're going to talk about today, which is Momotaro or the son of a peach, which I just love the sound of the story of the son of the peach (laughs) you son of a peach (laughs) so i'm gonna have i'm gonna start using that but yeah and there's lots of really interesting things about it so there's lots of as with anything you'll probably get tired of hearing us talk about this but there's so many different versions and the version that i kind of chose to base mine off of is one that was written or recorded down by yay theodora ozaki who's like a really fascinating person we'll talk about later but i wanted to put the caveat in there that i'm doing her version because she's kind of known for adding her own like embellishments and flair. So the general story is still there, but she added a lot of like interesting details, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to use it for the retelling because there's a lot more to go off of. So there's that, but here we go. So Momotaro or the story of the son of a peach. So long, long ago, there are these two peasants that were 
living and they were working really hard every day to just make a living and get by. And there was, there were an old couple, an elderly couple. And I love like in some of the versions, it specifically talks about how like they were just like a super cute old couple that just like loved each other so much. And they did so much together that there was like some special word that they would call them. That was like, basically they would call them like lovebirds. And I just love imagining this like 70 year old couple that they're just like so sweet and in love. And they had never been able to have children and they were really sad about that, but they kind of made the best of their lives, you know, with each other in spite of that fact that they always wanted to have children and they couldn't. So the the husband of the couple made his money by like cutting grass and doing stuff like that around other farms while his wife would take care of their household stuff and she would kind of do lots of stuff in their own rice field as well. Um, but she was also like would wash their clothes and do all sorts of stuff. So one day while the husband was out and he's like, you know, mowing the grass with his big old scythe at other places, the woman goes down to do their laundry at uh, the side of a river. She found a nice little spot where she wanted to put her little bag down or her laundry down and she starts cleaning the laundry. And as she's doing that, all of a sudden she sees rolling down the river, a giant peach, like the biggest peach that she's ever seen. She's like, what? She's like, it's like she she was old. She'd never seen a peach as big as that. So she got super excited. So she's doing all this stuff. She's like, oh my gosh, I got to bring this home to my husband. He won't believe what I found. So she's trying to like... I feel like that's just like such an adorable also like like husband-wife moment where they're like, oh, there's something that's like like really un- like an ordinary like happening. And I like, I want to show them as quickly as possible. Like, look exactly, what I yeah. Like they really are such a sweet couple. And that's because I have that experience too. I'm like, I see like, oh my gosh, look at this squirrel. Like I send like a picture to my wife or whatever. <laughs> so she's she's trying really hard. And it's actually kind of hard for her to get it. She's getting like a stick to try to get it. Um, and in some of the versions, it doesn't really come to her. And she has to sing like a little song. Oh. And as soon as she sings this little song and like is like clapping, then the peach kind of comes to a rest in front of her. So she brings it and she gets the peach and she brings it home and like all the way home. She's just super excited. Like, Oh my gosh, my husband's going to be so surprised when he sees this peach. <laughs> and she couldn't go back to work. You know, she was like so excited. So yeah. She kind of just abandoned her clothes. It's, and went it's back. the little, it's the little things in life. Exactly. So she goes home and she's like waiting for her husband, but because she gave up on her like chores, like he was still at work and he had no idea. So she's like waiting there for a long time. And by the time he gets there, she's so excited. And he's like, whoa, what's what's going on? What's the matter? She's like, I've been so impatient waiting for you to get here. And he's like, what's going on? And he's like, I have a present for you. And she goes in to grab the peach and bring it into him. And she realizes like, she's like, wow, the peach is like even bigger and heavier than it was before. And she's like, look at this. And she like pulls out the peach. <laughs> and she's like, have you ever seen such a big peach in your life? And the husband's like, you know, his mind is blown and they're just like having a good time. Like, holy cow. He's like, where did you buy this thing? She's like, I didn't. I just found it. Isn't that crazy? He's like, all right, well, I'm really hungry. I've been working mowing grass all day. So he's like, let's eat this thing. So he goes and he grabs like a big knife and he's like about to just like chop this peach in half when all of a sudden it splits in two and this little baby <laughs> pops out. And he's like, hold up. Wait, no. <laughs> I'm Don't James. <laughs> yeah, James in the giant peach. No, but it was, <laughs> it was, there was a baby inside the peach and they were like even more excited because not only did they get this giant peach, but they had gotten a, a child, which they've always wanted. Yeah. Interesting side note, in some versions of this, there's not the boy in the peach, but they eat the peach and she is then able to like conceive a child after that. Yeah. But either way, I like the story where he actually pops out of the peach. Um, me too. So And so they name him Momotaro. Momo means peach. And then Taro is like a really common name or like a part of a name for like a firstborn son. So it's the son of a peach. And so now they're like living a great life because they've got a kid that they've always wanted. And this kid is like amazing. He like grows really fast. He gets really strong. He's like taller and stronger than all the other kids his age. And he's just so well behaved and he's like brave and he's like just the embodiment of all these great, you know, qualities that they would want in a, in a kid. And so one day the kid comes to me, he's like, Hey, I love you guys so much. Thank you. You know, there's one thing I want you to do for me. And the, the father, the adoptive father is like, yeah, whatever it is. He's like, I want you to let me go away. And he's like, what? Go away. Okay. Yeah. But what are you going to do? And he's like, well, I heard about this Island where all these demons or Oni that live on this Island. And, you know, they're like horrible. They're coming in and they 
take our land, they steal our food, they do all this stuff. And I've even heard that they eat people. And like, oh. worst of all, they're disloyal to the emperor and don't obey his laws. That is so the like, worst. <laughs> the worst. So I'm going to go. I love that it's like eating people, but then worst of all, <laughs> yeah. they're disloyal worst to the all. emperor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you need to straighten out your priorities. <laughs> So, and then he's like, you know what? I'm going to go there. And then if I find any treasure or whatever, I'm going to bring that back to us. And so the old man's surprised, but he's like, okay, yeah, do whatever you want. And there's like some disagreement, again, between the stories about how old he was at this time. But they're seeing that he's like in his late teens, like not late teens, like 15, 16 years old. Yeah. And so, you know, he tells the mother and they're like, okay, we're going to let you go. But here's this big, as you know, grandmas are want to do, like they both the grandpa and the grandma make this big, well, I guess mom and dad adopted, but, but old man and old woman. Yes, they're in that generation, I understand. They go in and they make him these dumplings that he can have on his trip. So he sets out on his journey with these dumplings that they've made for him. And they're like, you know, holding each other and waving teary-eyed as, as he goes off on his adventure. And as he starts going out, all of a sudden this dog pops out and he's like, hey, what's going on? Why are you coming through here? And he's like, well... I'm on my way for an adventure. And the dog's kind of giving him a little sass, like, hey, well, how can you walk through my territory without even greeting me? And he's like, wait, don't you know who I am? I'm Momotaro. And he's like, what? Wait, you're Momotaro? Because apparently, like, even all the animals in Japan have heard how great this kid is. Yeah. And he's like, I've heard of your great strength. He's like, I'm sorry that, you know, if I knew it was you, I wouldn't have been so rude. And he's like, do you mind if I come with you on your adventure? And he's like, yeah, sure, come along. And he, like, feeds him a little, one of his dumplings and... They start going on the way. A little while longer, as they're walking down the road, a monkey climbs down out of the tree. And he's like, he's kind of friendly. He's like, hey, what's up? I heard that you're going on an adventure. Do you mind if I come with you? And at this point, like, <laughs> the dog is, like, kind of defensive. He's like, what? You know, we don't want you to come along. He's, like, very protective. It's like, no, Momotaro's, like, my friend. He's not your friend. He doesn't need any <laughs> new friends. <laughs> Getting a little jealous. Like, I just found um, this kid. He's mine now. Like. <laughs> Exactly. And the monkey's like, well, you know what? Like, I could help you along because I've got all these skills. And Momotaro's like, well, do you really want to come? We're going to the Island of the Devils. And he's like, yeah, I do. I'll do anything to help you. And he's like, you know what? I admire your courage. Here's one of my dumplings. You can come along with us. So the monkey comes along and the the author makes a point of uh, talking about how the monkey and the dog are like just fighting and bickering the whole time yeah so that he has to like separate them so like the dog has to go in front and the monkey has to go behind mostly because the dog is kind of like a, a punk but uh but they were and it says it's like you know the monkey and the dog were fighting just like monkeys and dogs do like yep. everybody knows everybody monkeys knows and dogs always fighting it's like it's a cultural thing i guess <laughs> we don't have monkeys here so it's hard to yeah like in america it's hard to be like wait do are these constantly warring factions of the animal kingdom like it's like but it's not too hard to even to see too it's like you know, monkey dog i could totally see how they would be you know at each other i've seen i've seen a squirrel just teasing a dog before so i can only imagine like a monkey yeah. just torturing a dog <laughs> definitely so they go along the, the monkey and the dog separated so there can be some peace and then next thing they know, a pheasant flies down and talks to them. And then the dog is like, wait a second. You're going to bring a pheasant along with us too? And then Mom Charles <laughs> like, you know what? Yeah, we're going to bring a pheasant. You know, if we're going to go fight these demons, we're going to need every advantage. We got to get them from the land, from the sea, from the air with the pheasant. We got to have all our bases covered. So they're like, okay, fine. And then Momotaro is like, and by the way, I'm not going to have any more of this fighting. The first one to start fighting with anybody else is getting sent home. Like this caravan can turn around just as easy. It could go forward. So um, the day came where they reached the sea. And in this journey, it talks about too, like throughout the journey that they've had to get to the sea, they've all become like really great friends. So there's like no more fighting between the dog and the monkey and the pheasant. They're all just like good to go. They're a but team. Then they, they're a team. They're like, I kept, I couldn't help but think about like uh, Kung Fu Panda, like the team, like the team of animals. I can't remember what they called, like the Furious Five or whatever. Yeah. It was like, you got, you got your, you got your dog, you got your pheasant, you got your monkey and the human. There weren't humans in Kung Fu Panda, but. There weren't, but it's okay. There were pandas. 
which are even better than people. I've always said that. <laughs> so they get to the water and then all of a sudden, like all the animals are like, wait, 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 wait. We have to go on the water to get to this place? He's like, it's called, you know, Demon Island. How else do you think they were going to get there? <laughs> and so they're all afraid. And he's like, well, if you don't want to come with me, I guess you can turn around. And they're like, oh, no, no, please, please don't leave us. We want to come with you. So they all get on the ship and they sail across the sea towards the island. And, you know, when they start getting close, they're like, all right, let's start playing to our strengths. We got a bird with us. So they send the bird on up ahead. And he's like, hey, send a message. Say, Momotaro's coming for you. Surrender now or we're just going to, you know, beat the snot out of you. And in, in a signal of your submission, break off your horns and like throw them down. And that will be how we know that, you know, you're not going to fight us and you're just going to gonna surrender. So the the pheasant goes and he delivers this message and he's like, Hey, I'm a bird. There's somebody coming. I imagine like, kind of like that big bird voice, like Momotaro's coming. He's going to beat you up. And <laughs> they look up and they just see like this one little bird. And they're like, what, what is this bird? You, you think you're going to, you think you're going to fight us? Like you're just one bird. So yeah. like they start like trying to fight the bird. So the bird like flies away. And then the demons have these like iron bars that they're like trying to throw up and like knock the pheasant out of the sky. So he's just like flying down and going and like pecking out eyeballs in between. In the meantime, Momotaro, the dog and the monkey pull up on the shore and they see these two beautiful, you know, damsels, they say, but these two beautiful women. And they say like, Oh, we're, we're daughters of daimyos and we've been kidnapped by these demons and they're using us to wash dark, wash their clothes. And so they look at the clothes that these girls are washing. These women, I guess are washing and they're like covered in blood. And the, you know, these women are just like crying. They're like, Oh, what's the matter? And like, you know, we're being held captive here. It's so like, you know what? Momotaro doesn't stand for this kind of abuse. No, he so does I'm gonna not. set you free. So he's like, he's like, don't cry anymore. Just show me how I get into the castle. And so they lead him up to the lowest part of the castle wall. So that, you know, a small little gap so that Momotaro, who's still, He's 15, but a, a kid yeah. can crawl under with the, the the dog and the monkey. So they come in and the demons are like distracted because they're like trying to knock this bird out of the sky that they're so surprised to see that now they're like surrounded yeah. by, you know, Momotaro and, and his team of like dog and, and monkey. So they start like fighting them. And as soon as they start fighting, the demons are like, oh my gosh, this kid is like, very strong. Yeah. So they like, they give up and they're like, you know what? We submit, they rip off their horns. The chief of the devils sees like how much destruction like Momotaro and these animals have done to his castle that he just comes up without any sort of a fight and he throws himself down. He kneels at Momotaro's feet and he like, you know, again, breaks off the horns off his head and submits and says, he's like, I'm so afraid of you. I can't stand against you. You know what? We won't bother you guys anymore. Just take all the treasures in this castle if you'll just spare my life. And so Momotaro is like, he's like, oh, like you're begging for mercy after you've like come and you've killed my people and you've stored our stuff and you've robbed our country for so many years. And dishonored the emperor. And so Momotaro, you know, tied him up and told him like, hey, you know, gave him to the monkeys like, hey, go lock this guy up. Momotaro goes and frees all the prisoners that they have there. And then together with all the people, they load up the treasure from the castle. And he goes back home and he's like a huge hero for having gone and conquered the demons. And with that treasure that he's brought, he's able to have a really good life of peace and plenty for him and his adoptive parents for the rest of their days. Aww. The end. A happy ending. A happy ending for me is a boy going back to take care of his elderly parents. Which it totally is. It is. And I just like, I can imagine the, you know, Momotaro living with his, you know, adoptive parents, like happily, you know, sitcom where they find other giant fruits floating down the, uh, the river. <laughs> just collect giant fruits. Are you getting your kicks on Route 66? If you're passing by the Petrified Forest, make sure to stop in Joseph City on Thursday, Friday, or Saturday for Mr. G's Pizza. Ask for Andy, and if he's there, let him know that he can run from the law, but he can't run from the eyes of Zeus. Grab a slice or a whole pie to go, or enjoy Mr. G's Pizza in the back room, which features theater seats and movies perfect for the whole family. Mr. G's Pizza, the only restaurant in town. 
worth going to. One of the biggest themes that stands out for me, because it, it's such a common reoccurring tale element, is the old childless parents. And uh, because like we see this happen a lot, even in like European fairy tales, where or even through um, different mythologies of older people can't have a child very much want to have a child. And then they're able to get a child like through some miraculous means. But the reason why it sticks out for me, I think so strongly in the Asian context is because even today I know that Asian families have that dynamic of, Children take care of their elderly parents, that the younger generation is responsible for taking care of the older generation. So it's so important in an Asian context to have, and it used to be more important in a Western context when those fairy tales were being made, but less so now. But it's still very relevant in Asia that you know, an an old childless couple, life is going to be hard for them in the coming years because they're not going to be able to take a a, a rest. They're not going to be able to, you know, move into that twilight period of their life where they're being cared for by anybody. There's going to, like, there's danger in that. And so to have a miracle child be, like, given to them by, like, the gods or, like, the, the river, whatever it is, that's answering this prayer. It's so important in that like Asian context. Yeah. That's interesting. It's funny. Cause that's not actually something I thought of at all with like reading this story, but you know, having lived in Japan and seen that at work over and over and over again, it's like, it really is. You're spot on. That is something that's like a really big part of their culture that like you said in the West, or at least in America has been somewhat lost. I mean, you think of nowadays, it's like really common whether in a joking fashion or in like real life where you talk about, you know, aging parents, like they go and they live at like a nursing home or, or whatever. It's like, it's more rare for them to come and live with the family. And it may be for a lot of reasons. It may not be something it's like that because they don't want them to or whatever. It's just, you know, life has gotten into a, a, a way that makes it impossible or, or whatever. But yeah, that is really interesting. And I haven't thought about the fact that that is something that's really common across other stories and other fairy tales and yeah no i i think one reason for me like it sticks out is because like we, i was like a childless couple like for a long time like struggling with infertility and so i think maybe like i just like i'm sensitive to that theme where right. anytime i see it like in a story where there's that story of like like a couple that really wants to have like a kid because it it pops up constantly through mythologies and through like different fairy tales of this, like want to have a kid. And then it always seems to be like when, when the couple does get this kid, the kid is better than like any other kid ever. Yeah. And I'm like, that's the greatest. Yeah. I'm like, and that's exactly the way I feel about my kids. (laughs) 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 They're more special than anybody else's kid. No. Um, I mean, I do feel that way about my children, but like it that's that's the the trope that like these kids that are long awaited for are usually like the chosen one in some way yeah which i mean it's momotaro is like a perfect example of that yeah something else i thought was really interesting about this was again being someone that is normally just like here to hear your story and comment on it <laughs> i don't do a lot of research into like the different versions but just like how diversions differ so much in this one again like i said you know yay theodore ozaki who's the one that wrote this one down was kind of known for embellishing and adding a lot of details and it's hard to know which were ones that she heard from storytellers and which were ones that she just added for her own flavor but that kind of the the concept is you know he's born of the peach he goes and he fights the demons at the island who are terrible he comes back and he brings back treasure there's another version that was written down earlier um, and it was recorded by a guy named William Elliot Griffiths. Um, and his title was Peach Prince and the Treasure Island. And that focused so much on like the treasure aspect of it. Like even before Momotaro goes out, like in, in the one that I told today, he's motivated by wanting to take care of his country. 
wanting yeah. to protect his, the the people around him from you know and and presumably his parents and the people that he loves from these demons who are causing them a lot of trouble. But in this other one, before it even mentions kind of like the fact that they're cannibals and they're doing all these things, he's talking about like the treasure that's there. And it gets really specific. Like he talks about there's a hat that you wear, like a straw hat that grants invisibility. And there's this other, like it's a grass rain cloak, like a farmer's rain cloak that also gives you the power of invisibility. And there are these like crystal jewels that control one of them, like can create fire and the other one controls the tides. And then there's this other one is called, they're like the seven jewels, which are like silver, gold, red coral, crystal, emerald, pearl, and um, agate. Which is like, I don't even know what agate is, but, but anyway, so it's just like really interesting that it seems like in this version of the story, his motivation is to go out and get the treasure yeah. and bring it back. And who, wait, who, has, who did you say that the author was? Or like the, like, where does that? Um, yeah. William Elliot Griffiths, who is like, uh, well, cause like what I've noticed, like researching is that it, the person who's recording the story, like it really matters if they were a person that was part of the culture when they were recording it or whether they were an outsider coming and recording the story, because like, it would make sense to me that if like a white person came in, like somebody Western, I should probably say, it makes sense to me that the thing that they would focus on is the treasure. While if a person from Japan was writing the story, they would be focusing on the, like the national pride aspect of the story and defending the people. And that's, that's why I yeah, asked. Totally. And, and, and this guy was obviously, you know, he was writing it down in English um, and he was an American. He traveled to Japan and he lived in Japan for a, you know, a long time. And he was picking up these stories and the thing, but yeah, yeah. it is important because when you're thinking about who's recording these, like you've talked about a lot, they're, they're choosing the details that, they want from the different versions that they've heard. Yeah. And it's crazy because I find myself doing that where, where when I'm retelling a story, I'll emphasize the parts that to me are the most interesting. Yeah. And then I'll end up skipping over parts that I'm like, ah, that's neither here nor there. And then someone will kind of like, point out like, oh, well, but that's interesting that this didn't happen. And I was like, oh, well, it actually did. I just skipped over it. So it's interesting when I find myself doing it. Yeah. And it's like, I did that just now in the story that I was telling too. I'm sure if people going through and reading, you know, as I was going through, there were some parts that were kind of tripping me up because I didn't remember it because it, you know, it didn't stick out to me or whatever. Like I emphasized the whole point about like them being like this really cute, like loving old couple. Like I probably put way more into that than was that like those details were actually there, you know, but I yeah. put a lot more emphasis and time on it in my telling of it just now than I did in the, you know, written version that we have there. Yeah. Because it was like a, it was a key part that like you liked, it spoke to you as like a person. And exactly. S- and so it is interesting. Like when you're looking at the different retellings that are available and they're recorded when it's like, well, it's interesting that like this version, they really focused on like the treasure and it's like, well, that's the point that they thought was like the adventure part, the most like interesting like part to that. They were like, Oh, my audience, especially if they were writing it for like an audience of kids, they're like the treasure hunting part's going to be the most important part, the funnest part. But then if you're using the story as a, like a symbol for protecting like Japan and loving like Japanese people, then you would focus on like this group that was coming in and like, hurting Japanese people and, and eating their people and dishonoring the emperor. Like that's the part that you would focus on. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense with thinking back. Cause like, like I said before, the person that, that recorded the version, I just kind of based my retelling off of was yay. Theodora Ozaki. Who's really interesting in the sense that she's, you can tell by her name, she's got a Japanese name, but she's also got like an English name. Yeah. So she was the daughter of a Japanese father and an English mother who they got married, you know, had kids, and then they separated when she was really young. And so, you know, 
Ozaki was taken from Japan and she went and lived with her mother for a long time in England. So she had this kind of like English upbringing. And then when she was about like 15 or 16 years old, her father demanded she come and live with him. Yeah. And so she started living with her father in Japan and then started, um, she was kind of like a really big like socialite, but she would like go to all these parties. She would meet all these important people. Yeah. Both. She was a really good bridge between the Japanese people and all these other like missionaries and scholars that were coming and other people that were doing translations of fairy tales. Yeah. And she's like a really fascinating person and her life story is really interesting in that way too. But she talks about how, you know, even though she was like kind of born in Japan and then raised in England and then she came back to Japan, like to her, like Japan was, she called it something like, you know, the country of her soul. Like that's where her soul belonged. So it really makes sense that she would focus so much more on, the kind of like nationalism and like the pride in her country. And that's why Momotaro was going out to fight, which is really interesting too, because one of the reasons, I mean, this is a really old story. One of the oldest recorded versions they say like in Japanese was recorded in like, you know, the 1300s. Yeah. And like you go back before that, there was like some of the oldest written works in Japanese are like something called like the Kojiki and, and it's, and those stories are really interesting too, because they're the collections of like the creation myths and the, the stories of like, you know, the myths of early Japan. Yeah. And so like not too long after that is when the story of Momotaro comes as well. And this time when it's being translated in English is a, t- a period of time when Japan was really starting to like form a national identity as like one place called Japan. So when you study the history of Japan, it's so interesting. Again, I'm not like a huge expert, but, and even having lived there doesn't make me so much of an expert, but I have like I'm interested in it, so I read into it a little bit. But, yeah. you know, for a long time, it was like all these, you know, there's different pockets of people kind of like in medieval England where you've got, you know, a leader in an area that has their, like, military forces. You think of, like, you know, in Europe, it was like a lord and the knights. And in Japan, it was like a daimyo or whoever and and the samurai that they would go out. And there was, like, just warring between each other for a long time. And it wasn't until there was, you know, the the shogunate and the military government that kind of like was like enforced through military strength this united Japan. And then they started pushing things back over to the emperor being, you know, the central figure and and things around that. So, you know, it was a time in Japan when these were being translated into English that this whole idea of a Japanese identity was really trying to be like solidified. So this was one of the stories that they would take and it was like put into in the late 1800s, early 1900s. It was used in schools. You know, they put together these collections of these stories in schools that would be taught to school children throughout the entire country so that they would have this common ground of, of stories that they would pull yeah. from, which is like I, I feel like it's something that I experienced. Like we in American oh, yeah. schools growing up, we have like you know, American, very like Johnny Appleseed and, you know, talking about, I mean, you know, real people, but, you know, Paul kind Bunyan of like the legendary and, stories. Yeah. yeah, Paul Bunyan. Yeah, like all these people that we can kind of gather around and have this pr- national pride in, which is kind of cool. And I think it's not surprising that this is a story that would be foremost in people's minds at the time that it just so happened that a lot of English speakers were there and wanting to translate stories into English. There was another guy um, who's named Takajiro Hasegawa that published these versions of these stories that are very simplified, meaning them to be for children. And his original idea was he was seeing, you know, with the meeting of the West Mm -hmm. and Japanese culture in Japan, there was this desire for people to learn English. So people were bringing, you know, Western and other fairy tales written down in English and other stories that they could use to teach their children and other people how to read English. So he saw that and was like, oh, I'm going to make Japanese fairy tales that they're already familiar with, publish them in English so that then people can read. But it ended up actually being more popular, not as a native thing in Japan, but to export it throughout the world. So he went to world's fairs in Chicago and London and all these places. And they started publishing these and sending them out into the world. And they became like a really uh, you know, popular like collector's item yeah. to see like, well, look at these stories from, you know, across the sea. And yeah, Japan. because especially like after a country is kind of like they've heard all of their stories, like their familiar stories, they're like, OK, I know this one. I know this one to then have another country's like stories come in. There's like an an exoticism and just like a like the excitement of like new stories, themes that like we haven't looked at in a different way. Like it is more exciting to like read other people's stories you haven't heard yet. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I feel that way. That's one of the reasons why I was kind of excited to get into this. It was a place that I was familiar with and a culture I was familiar with and people that I like 
I was somewhat familiar with from having lived over there. So it was like really exciting to be able to learn a, more about that culture that I already have an interest and love for through their stories. And I find it's really cool. Like no matter where the stories originate from, there will be differences than things we don't understand, but also you can still totally relate. Yeah. Again, it's going back to previous episodes about Aesop or whatever, even though it's separated so far through time and life was so much different, there are certain things about, you know, human nature that are so consistent. And it's just really cool to see, you know, across culture, across time, yeah. it doesn't matter. People are people. And there are some things that we value, it seems, just as yeah. people, irrespective of country or, you know, the time that we're born in, which is really cool and interesting. Yeah. it. I feel like studying other people's stories and like learning more about their stories that they're telling, relating them back to stories that you've told, like it, it humanizes, like it, it makes us humanize each other, even though we're like, Oh, I've never heard your stories before. But once I hear your stories and I'm like, Oh, that reminds me of this story that I have. Like it, it creates this shared humanity. So, which I, I don't think like people can, you know, underestimate the power of just how that can bring people together, like share having yeah. shared stories together. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things we see now too in our culture today, like that I've noticed a lot is that, you know, through streaming and stuff like that, we're able to see movies and TV shows from countries all over that was so much more difficult before. Yeah. Like right now, actually my wife is obsessed with like Korean dramas yeah. And like Korean like soap operas. And she like watches those things like all the time. Like she would rather watch that than, you know, something else. And yeah. it's just like, it's a really cool thing about the technology that we have these days. We're able to share these things with each other more and more. And like it, this big, big world starts feeling smaller and smaller. And we start feeling closer and closer to people that live on literally the other side of the planet from us. Yeah. Because it's like last year there was like a K-pop uh, band that's super, super popular that performed at on SNL on Saturday Night Live. And watching that, I was like, this is amazing that there's enough of like an audience here in like the US that Saturday Night Live was like, oh, this is part of the zeitgeist. Like we need to have them on the show because oh, yeah. like, this is important. And yeah, it's like the the age that we're living in now, we are able to share our media with each other and the more that we understand the background of that like shared media the better we'll understand the stories but also like just the closer we'll feel to each other yeah and it was really interesting too like you're normally like the researcher and knowledgeable one and i oh still gosh. maintain that that is true but <laughs> i was trying to do research onto you know on this about just like japanese fairy tales in general and like yeah. folk tales and all this stuff. And it gets so complicated just yeah. because again, like this is a culture that has had written stories for a lot longer yeah. than someone that we might be familiar with, like in Western stuff. Like, yeah. you know, you think of like, Oh, brothers Grimm, that was like the 1600s. Like they were writing stuff down in like a thousand years before that, Yeah, you know, in, in Asia. Like also what I've found with pretty much like every single country's fairy tales that you'll have fairy tales then you're like, oh, I don't understand. Like, why did they use this symbolism? Like, why did they use this animal to represent this? Why did you do? And so you you go back further, you do more research, and then you end up with like older folk tales. Then you end up with mythologies and like the religions of the people. And then you know, by then, you know, you're you're back thousands and thousands of years, and then things get muddy because of. Yeah, where were these people and how close was their influence to other like countries or where did they come from? And so it is like it's intense work to go back and and study just even one individual country's fairy tales because you end up getting sucked back through time. <laughs> yeah. And just spread out. Yeah. Like, there's just you find so many directions to go with it. And it's like you know, in some ways, I feel like I know less than I knew before. Yes. <laughs> when I actually like, went into study, you know, which is a great thing. It's like, you know, they talk about the, the smartest people in a subject know that there's so much more that they don't know than they do know. Yeah. That's why somebody can be a scholar of 
one country. And that's like all that they have like devoted their life to. They're like, no, I'm devoted to Japanese studies and the history of Japan. And even they are like, I don't know everything about Japanese history. There's just so much to know. There is. And like, you know, it goes back over just thousands and thousands of years of world history. So this was a story. uh, Momotaro was a story that I was not familiar with at all. When Jeff was like, Oh, I'd be really interested to like tell this story and like talk about like Japanese fairy tales. I was like, I don't, I don't think I know Momotaro. Like I've never like heard this story. And when I started like to search it out, the two places that I like found this story and that I also was like, Oh, I'm interested. Cause I'm sure I could have done like a Google search and gotten like an online version to just like read over like really quickly. But mm-hmm. the versions that I found were actually in comic books and, um, oh, cool. different or like one of them was inside of a graphic novel. So there's a graphic novel by Craig Phillips and he's actually from New Zealand and his graphic novel is called Giants, Trolls, Witches, Beasts, Ten Tales from the Deep Dark Woods. And so there's several good like graphic novel stories in here. But one of them was the story of Momotaro. And that was really good to kind of like familiarize myself with it. And it was beautiful. Like it was like beautifully like illustrated. And because, of course, it's a graphic novel. And so I thought it was interesting, too, being able to listen to you telling the story, Jeff, and seeing which parts he had included. And he had included most of the things that that you were talking about. The only one that he didn't was the ladies, actually, that were the like the washerwomen that helped him like yeah. sneak like into the back. It was interesting because that was the part that, again, when it, when I kind of got to that part, it threw me off because I had forgotten about that and like what the point of that was and everything. Yeah. So it's interesting too that like this other person had a reason why they may have overlooked it. Yeah. That they either were or like not included it. Yeah. That they were like, that's not an element that like I care to look at. And then the other place that I found a version of it that I think other people definitely should look up. There's a comic book called the storyteller. It's, it's by Jim, the Jim Henson company. Because there used oh. there used to be like an a TV show called The Storyteller where it was framed around this old man and his dog in this house, and the old man would be telling his dog different stories from like around the world. So these comic books <laughs> are around that, but they take the fairy tale and they kind of like they change it like a little bit. And so this comic book series, what they'll do is they'll get like four stories about giants or four stories about sirens or four stories about witches. And they'll um, publish it as first as individual comic books. And then as like a graphic novel type thing where it's, you know, four stories inside of like one that people can look up and get. Um, That's the storytellers. And I read it in the giants issue. This is what I I was going to ask you, Jeff Momotaro is he giant? Like, is he big or is he small? Or is he a That's, regular sized person? Because you said he was strong. Yeah. But I'm wondering about the well, size of him. That's interesting because I'm not sure. In the, all the versions that I read, he seemed to be, like it talks about how he would grow bigger and taller than his peers, yeah. basically. But then it also made a point, you know, within the one that I that I retold, it made a point that he was bigger and stronger than his peers, but also that he was small enough to kind of sneak into the castle so i think well he's smaller he's smaller than ogres right he's smaller than like the demons but he for a person he's big i don't think he's like a giant but i think he's supposed to be somewhat bigger but that's you know again i don't know but based on the the ones that i read that's kind of the impression that i got yeah because in so the version in giants trolls witches beast by craig phillips he is portrayed as small, like even though he was like small for his size, like for like his age or whatever, he was still like big in bravery and big in like kindness and smarts. Yeah. But that his body was small. But then in the storyteller, in the giant's edition, 
Connor Nolan, who illustrated that comic, he kind of says at the beginning of his edition that when he wanted to tell a story about a giant, he wanted to pick a nice giant. And that's why he picked Momotaro, because Momotaro was a gentle giant. And so I was kind of like, wait, so which is it? So I think that's interesting that just in different versions, too, it's we see how people play with what they what they want to share whether a person yeah. who's small can still be mighty or whether a person who's like big and powerful can choose to use that for good yeah totally um and again like i said in the things i came across there was lots of different discrepancies about like like again how old he was when he came out of the peach how old he was when he went out to go and fight and just to again point people to some more research so they can read for themselves things that i read like the yay theodora ozaki collection is called the japanese fairy book and it's like in public domains, so you can find scans on it. And it has a bunch of stories in there, including Momotaro that you can read on about. There's a really good foreword to another collection that she did called Warriors of Japan um, that has a little section written about her and her husband. And it's like a really fascinating story that I only got into a little bit. And then I also did the William Elliot Griff's version, which is in a collection called The Japanese Fairy World. And that's the one that kind of focused on the treasure. And it has a bunch of other stories in there as well. And then you can also find scans going back to kind of the graphic nature. You're talking about the graphic novels in the Takajiro Hasegawa versions. They have a lot of these really awesome um, illustrations that were done with like woodcut, you know, because like the Yukioa, like the wood Japanese woodcut is an art that goes back in Japan a long time. And it's really, really cool to see the illustrations that they've done. So you can find scans of Momotaro as its own little short collection in the Japanese fairy tale series. And you can see all of that. And it's just really cool. So I definitely encourage people to go out and read and learn more. And if you find out something really interesting and like something I said that I know was probably definitely wrong, like reach out to us because this is something that I am really interested in and I, I want to, you know, learn more. That's kind of the whole reason why I'm happy to be on this podcast is, is learning and exploring. So I encourage you all to do the same. You've been listening to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. If you enjoyed what you listened to, please leave us a review and share with your friends. For more fairy tale content, head over to thefairytellers.wordpress.com for lighthearted retellings, or follow us on Instagram for daily fairy tale memes at the fairy underscore tellers, or even join the conversation on our Facebook page. Special thanks to Andrew Forey for our music and Clarice Inch for our artwork. May you have warm words on a cold evening, a full moon on a dark night, and a smooth road all the way to your door. An Irish blessing. Did you want me to do the introduction for this one, or did you want to... Um, I, I was planning on it, and I can okay. do it, but if good, you good, have good. something that you no, want to do... No, no, absolutely. I'm so ready okay. like for you to kind of like take the lead on this one. And my husband will be excited to hear an episode where like, you're talking because <laughs> he hates you it really is that and the sound of your voice i really think it is like he has heard my opinion so much he wants to hear somebody else's opinion <laughs> <laughs> all right <laughs>